Today's episode is brought to you by Slate House Publishing, recorded at Wayne Howard Studios. Hi, everybody. This is Jeremy from Slay House Publishing presents Lit Bits. And with me, as always, is Trevor. Hey, you did it right. I know. I. It's one of the few times I always get that right. Um, and Curtis. Good morning. And I am really, 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 really excited. That was a lot of really. That was a lot of really. Um, to welcome today, I'm going to say award-winning and best-selling author Alma Katsu to our podcast. And Thank you so much. Uh, I guess I want to start with... Um, uh, you have led a, a very interesting professional career, not just as a professional writer, but even beforehand. So um, for a number of years. So do you want to share with us some of the highlights from your, your professional career? Sure. First of all, thank you for having me. I really appreciate this. You guys are so kind, too kind. Um, sure. I'll talk a little bit about it because I do think in some ways uh, it's going to resonate with a lot of folks who want to have a career in writing mm. because that's how I started out when I was a young girl. And this was way before the Internet. So researching things was a lot harder. You know, I wanted to be a novelist like a lot of kids uh, who were kind of loners and introverts. You know, I grew up in the library, I always had my nose in a book and just sort of assumed that one day I'd be a writer. But I didn't know how to do it because there were no examples of writers. I didn't know the only writers I could see were in the newspaper, newspaper writers. So I actually started as a stringer for newspapers when I was still a teenager. And I sort of assumed I'd, I'd do that. But then I didn't go into a journalism program, which is really stupid. And um, uh, but but I wanted to be a novelist. Well, it, people kept telling me, you know, you, you don't have enough life experience. So, you, you know, well, how can you write novels? So I struck out to try to do things that would give me interesting experiences. And one of them was testing for a position with the National Security Agency, because <laughs> I heard, oh, yeah, they, you know, just jump in the deep end, why don't you, Alma? And because um, I heard a lot of crazy stories about them. And like I said, this was pre-internet, so it was very hard to check any of these out. I lived in Boston, long ways away from Washington, D.C. But anyway, um, I did get accepted, and that's how I got into intelligence, not because I had this driving need to work in that field or that it had always intrigued me. And years later, I actually did recruit for a year for CIA. And I found out that many people like dedicate their whole young lives to getting a job in, in intelligence. And it made me feel really guilty. But, um, <laughs> so I did that. And then I returned to writing much later in life um, at 40, actually. And, and we can go into why that is. But um, and went back to college, got my master's degree, spent 10 years working on a novel before it was in a place where it was ready to be sold. And um, so, you know, I sold my first novel at 50 and have been doing this now for over 10 years and uh, surprised and had a lot of ups and downs in my career. And we can talk about that. We can talk about the difference between writing, which, you know, bef it, the craft is what everyone really should focus on. But unfortunately, mm, a lot yeah. of people, me included, early on get very focused on the business end of thing, which mm. is getting published and all that. Um, so we can talk about both parts of that craft and, and publishing. Yeah, I think my follow up question was really just, um, you know, what what do you think about your career kind of helped you? become a professional writer? You know, do you feel like there were skills that maybe you picked up in intelligence that were more directly applicable to your journey as an author? 
Probably, I mean, there's some that immediately come to mind, and and that is, as an analyst, you have to learn to have to have like incredible attention to detail. Mm. You know, when you're writing a report that's going up to the president, um, you know, it, it they teach you how to take an incredibly complex subject and how to figure out how to boil it down to its essential facts and how to organize it in such a way that is easily understandable, you know, that you have to read it only once and you pick up all those things, you know, how to organize notes, how to research things. All of those, of course, have been very useful um, for writing. But of course, none of the other stuff <laughs> that makes writing an art <laughs> and less of just a, you know, a commodity. You know, none of that comes in intelligence, and that's where, um, you know, a, a lot of reading came in. And then um, to a lesser extent, like the master's program and that sort of thing. I definitely don't think you need to get a master's degree in order to write. You just maybe have to pile that much more into your own um, education process, making sure you read and, you know, listen to other authors and, um, you know, study the craft. Yeah. What have been some of the things that have helped you the most? I mean, I know you talked about it, it kind of taking that 10 year span to get, uh, was it the taker? That was the, the one that took yeah, that one? Yeah. How, um, like, what did you learn through that process to, to finally get the taker, you know, out the door? Oh, my God. Maybe it's because, like, I'm, I was just so obtuse in the beginning. You know, it's amazing. Now I'm old. I can look back and, you know, I realize when you're the older you are, the more you realize how hard it really is to learn something. And when you're younger, you're so sure you know what you're talking about and you know what you're <laughs> doing. And then you find, you know, and that that this is the process of writing The Taker. I wrote it. Um you know, the first couple of, it took a long time just to even get it to anything resembling what the final state was, you know, I'm getting a lot of feedback from readers and professors in my writing program, which was pretty amazing. Hopkins accepted me on a piece of genre writing, which right. believe me, my, my cohorts <laughs> didn't appreciate, but, um, <laughs> but, um, you know, all that feedback kind of help put me in the right direction but there's so much that goes especially into a novel and it's um it's a lot of hard knocks you just gotta like learn by getting reactions from people and then afterwards you sort of figure out oh that's what they mean by you know writing in a particular way that's what they mean by character driven that's what they mean by you know all those things so um yeah probably the most important skill you need to have is patience <laughs> and listening to other people even when you don't like what they're saying to you and a really tough one is learning what advice to keep and what advice to ignore because mm. not everybody's going to be right a lot of people are going to give you their opinion which may not be right for the book yeah 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 i think we see that a lot on the social media sphere uh with regards to like kind of the author side of things seems like there's always somebody out there ready to give a hot take about what you should or should not do, you know, in writing. And I think a lot of that prescriptive advice can sometimes not be as helpful as they think. Yeah. It can be really um, 
damaging. And unfortunately, and, and I know these people were well-meaning, right? It's not mm. like they're throwing it out there because they're deliberately trying to throw somebody's writing off track or something. Mm. But it's kind of like, goes back to what I said before, when you're young or when you're new to something, you may not realize sometimes the limitations of your own view. And you 100% believe what you're saying. And you just don't have the experience to understand that that's only one part, one way of looking at something, let's say. So they say something very vehemently to someone else who maybe doesn't have a lot of experience. And that person then takes their advice, follows it. You know, especially when you're starting out, I remember feeling this way. Exactly. You know, it's just like, tell me what to do. Tell me what to do and I'll fix the story, you know, like of editors or agents. Just tell me how to fix it. And of course, nobody can. That's that's part of the journey. But you're so desperate for someone who you think has the magical answers in this little trunk that they keep under their desk. And unfortunately, that's just not how it works. Yeah. I discovered that a lot um, in my, I've spent the, almost the past 10 years teaching both graduate and undergraduate creative writing workshops. And you having been through a writing program, I mean, those workshops almost felt like it desensitized me from that kind of more aggressive kind of feedback. And and also kind of taught me that, like what you're saying, everybody doesn't have the answer. So what was the, the workshop like or the writing uh, school like for you in that regard, like? Well, I had two passes at the critique critique type programs. One was in the master's program at Hopkins, where you had to have, take at least three critique courses as part of the program. And when I went through it, which was, uh, I forget, 2000 <laughs> to 2004, I think. Mm still relatively like heyday of these of the programs and so the classes were fairly large for a master's program which are generally part-time programs um you know we would easily have 20 or 24 people in a class oh wow wow yeah (laughs) and i was easily the oldest person in the class and um uh you know, and, and I had a chip on my shoulder. You know, I was a national intelligence officer at the time. So I kind of think I knew a few things. And a lot of the other folks were kind of new, just out of a college program or something. And, you know, there's just a lot of emotion going on in those classes. And I didn't realize it at the time. And it's so easy to get sucked into whatever emotional thing somebody else is going through, mm. you know, like they're just so aggressive and they're trying to dominate the class or, you know, and navigating that is, is part of the experience, unfortunately. And then I went to Squaw Valley I think it was towards the end of my master's program. I went in 2003, I think. I remember because I was working the Iraq war in the office of the secretary of defense and I had to talk them into letting me leave because I'd been accepted in that. And so I was not in a good place when I went to that class. You know, I was exhausted and just Mm. at the end of my tether and did not get as much out of the program as I'd hoped. But the classes there were really good. I try to remember, I think they limited the classes to like 10 people, maybe eight to 10 people. So it was better. And you got to know the people better because it was so intensive. So, you know, they can be good. They can be bad. I'd like to think in the, what is it? Almost 20 years since I've been through the programs that, that there's techniques have emerged to make them better, to make them less emotional and Mm -hmm. 
a, a little bit easier on the participants. Please tell me that's true. It is. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. my, some of my graduate classes, I've actually we've developed some uh, developed some pretty intensive rubrics to help kind of guide people and teach them exactly techniques. To, uh, we're trying to be better about teaching like vocabulary. Um, and and try and getting them to where they, they have a better understanding of what the craft is actually about. I mean, so uh, we're trying to treat it like, you know, musicians have a whole vocabulary for, for playing music and for studying music, and artists mm-hmm. have the same thing. So as writers in these graduate programs, we've been trying to develop that vocabulary and those craft skills that will help kind of, no matter what genre you're writing in, kind of spread out. People, so. Oh, boy, I should ask you to send that to me because I just accepted <laughs> I'm going to be one of the um, um, uh, instructors at Clarion East oh, wow. this summer. Okay. They wow. had somebody drop out so that, you know, I'm available. So they asked me. <laughs> <laughs> but I warned them. I said, it's been 20 years since I've been in a, a critique class. And you know, I'm known for being a bossy little person. I was a boss in, you know, in the Defense Department and CIA. So I'm kind of bossy. Are you sure you want me? And they were like, yeah, yeah, you're available. Come on. Um, so, yeah, send me those notes, please. I, I definitely think I will. Can... Definitely. Definitely. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> I, I think I, I think we're on clown nine over here. I think we are. Yeah, we're yeah. still just kind of fanboying that we're talking to you. So. Oh, you're so kind. Um, so, uh, you know, just talking about the MFA program, like I said, I have a, a student who is currently in an MFA program. She's got just a little bit longer to go. Um, and uh, Jeremy's worked with her as well. And Jeremy's, mm-hmm. you know, been through an MFA program. She wanted to know, um, you know, genre literature is frequently frowned upon. Um, and yet the last couple of decades have proven that there's a lively and profitable margin. Uh, or market for for genre fiction. So, you know, what are your your thoughts on kind of the current state of genre fiction and what advice would you have for young creatives who feel stifled by that kind of academic disdain for genre fiction? So I'm sad to hear that. I've been kind of saying over the years, I hope that the that MFA programs and writing programs have have changed a bit in that regard because it was that case. But like I said, it was 20 years ago. The reality, I mean, it depends on what people want with their with their writing mm-hmm. and then separately if they want a writing career, right? Because writing is one thing. And I grew up thinking I would be a literary writer. And, you know, I went I as an undergrad, I thought I'd be a literary writer. And I kind of saw myself in that area of people who sort of blur the line with the genre and literary when I went to the master's program. But then when you get into the business, you find out that literary work, while, you know, it's all very important to nourish the soul and everything, that's not where commercial publishing is. So if your dream is to be published by one of the big five or something, they publish very little literary work. And the ones, you know, the statistics prove over and over again, the sales are very low. I think the last one I saw was that the average literary novel sells 1,200 copies. Wow. That's why traditional publishers do not publish much <laughs> literary work because that's not sustainable for them. Mm-hmm. Now, there's plenty of great smaller independent publishers that publish literary fiction, mm-hmm. and they're happy with numbers in you know, 2,000, 5,000 copies. They'd be thrilled with those kinds of sales. And if you would be thrilled with those kinds of sales, that's absolutely fine. But I think, I mean, I certainly found out once I got into publishing, 
it's really tough on your ego to see your friends selling tens of thousands of copies <laughs> and you're not right. You know, you have to be honest with yourself. Do you want, if I want to keep getting a contract, maybe literary fiction is not going to be the way to go. <laughs> if I want to make the bestseller list, just look at the New York times bestseller list, right? It's, mm. It's a, it's tough, right? So you got to ask your, be honest with yourself, and ask yourself those questions. So yeah, no, I had no qualms about writing more commercial fiction because I like money. Um, I, I was a, I was a government employee my whole career. You don't get rich working for the government. And I've since seen what people who are just even comfortable live like, and. I want that. I've worked very hard in my life. I like being comfortable. Yeah. I think I can agree with you on that. That's definitely a goal yeah, of mine. You're it's, talking to two yeah. people who are still working on on government money. Yeah, basically. yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, because Jeremy and I both work for. I mean, we we work for an athletics program, but we yeah. work for the University of Arkansas. So, yeah, yeah, we we know what that's like. We, yeah, we're sure. state employees. Yeah. So, yeah. so let me let me go let me lead off of that then. So, um, so they want commercial. They don't, you know, literary doesn't sell well. But I've noticed at least in examining, like I've read The Hunger, I've read The Deep. You read um, The Hunger. Read You've the read Hunger, Red Widow. Red Widow. I'm almost done with The Deep. Yeah. Yeah. So we've noticed some literary techniques and some literary craft built into the commercial of these stories. So how, uh, what do I want to ask here, Trevor? How do I want to phrase this? Like, um, like how, how do you manage, how do you sneak those, those more literary qualities into such commercial fiction? How do you get that in so that you're still getting that, that blend of literary and genre? Yeah. Well, you know, like a lot of people, I sort of chafe a little bit at the distinction and things mm, may have changed yeah. again, since I went through writing programs. But generally, you know, we were taught that plot driven fiction is generally commercial fiction is plot driven, where plot trumps all and it's it's just keep those pages turning and people just Mm -hmm. want the question answered, you know, whatever the main question and central question to the book is, where literary fiction tends to be character driven. Well, that's the way Mm -hmm. I was trained. So all my stories are character driven. Although it has to have a plot. <laughs> so you're kind of you're kind of balancing the two. But I've never been one. I mean, I hate books that have these stupid, stupid plots that are just, you know, just what's the word I'm looking for? You know, they're like it's like traps for the reader. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, will so and so ever find out who killed her sister? Like, <laughs> You know, really, really? <laughs> you know, how would you approach that and and hold your head up except from a character driven perspective? Right. Because right. so so that's really the only key for me is that it's always character driven. Mm. And so everything that happens in the story has to be a logical result of who that person is mm. and hopefully the end. But then you've got to reconcile that with not only resolving the central question, but doing it with, you know, the five twists or something. Now, right. it's got to be a puzzle box. It's uh, got to yeah. be impossibly hard. It's so hard to write these things. But um, yeah. I, yeah. I, So that's it. <laughs> I haven't just read Red Widow because um, I, I, I just finished it a couple of weeks ago. Um, I was floored by how beautifully you handled the characters in that book. Um, because I, oh, thank you. So one of the things, I mean, it really felt like you were trying to to kind of provoke a conversation about like the human weight of espionage, right? Like who 
who do we displace with um, the way we pursue information? And, and then further, like, what is the cost of ambition, um, you know, to people when you're working in, you know, an agency like CIA or something like that? Um, yes. Thank you. That's exactly kind of why I wanted to write the book. My editor actually approached me and um, for various reasons, you know, she knew that I probably wanted to write a spy novel and, you know, was willing to give me the, the room to do it. And I'd always thought if I got the opportunity to do it, it would be for very specific reasons. One is, you know, I, I love the job, but but I and almost everybody who ever does it realizes, you know, that it's it's two sides of a coin, you know, just you go in it with the best of intentions. And then very soon you realize that there's just a lot of things about it that, you know, you really need to think, be thoughtful about what you're doing and, and not just do what you're told because, mm. you know, a lot of people could get hurt and ambition often ends up driving, you know, there's a lot of, of things that CIA and NSA, for instance, have done in the past and maybe doing now for all I know. <laughs> but I mean, cause like I was at the Pentagon when they decided to do this whole Patriot Act shit. And I mm. got very mad with, um, uh, you know, the managers in place. And that's mm. one of the reasons why I left the Defense Department and ended up going over to CIA, because I really felt like the Defense Department had lost its way. That's mm. kind of but that's the role of the Defense Department. Right. It serves the president. It's, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. anyway. So, um, yeah, there's just a lot of those kinds of um conundrums that are part of this particular job that in a way I felt was very unique that would that I wanted to see presented in a story in ways that I wasn't seeing in a lot of uh, really popular mm. um, spy fiction you know mm. I love Le Carre and stories that are like that that are more mm -hmm. thoughtful and kind of look at all of the um what's the word I'm sorry I'm still kind of half asleep <laughs> <laughs> you know look at Look at those kinds of issues as opposed to like just the special ops, you know, military mm -hmm. spy thriller. Let's go shoot them all up kind of stuff, <laughs> which which has its place. I understand that. But that's not the kind of book I want to write. Yeah. Anyway. I, yeah. No, no. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I thought it was really interesting. There was a, like not a single bullet is fired in all of Red Widow. Um, and and when I, I put the book down, I, I kind of sat back and I was like, um, in a way, I feel like it subverts a lot of the common wisdom of like what makes a spy thriller work, you know, because like it, it, it feels like so many spy thrillers are just like, it's all action. It's all, you know, like the stakes are huge. And, and I was like, you know, really at its core, like this is, this is a conversation about like, you know, this, this woman with a bad boss, you know, and, and like what happens <laughs> when, um, what happens when you know, you start treating people as though they're disposable to your own ambitions, you know? And I, yeah. Yeah. So that guy is a real person and I work for him at the heart of that story is a real case and uh, all the facts were changed. So you can't, mm. you'd never be able to figure it out, sure. but it is based on a real case. It was in the newspaper for a long time. It was never publicly associated with CIA mm. and um, yeah, <laughs> People are just like, what? That guy is, uh, he was fired. That's all that happened to him. And which really mm. shocked my agent and editors. They're like, you're kidding. You know, he didn't go to jail. <laughs> nope. And I tried to explain that in the book. I mean, what yeah. happens at the end was very yeah. true to life. It's always handled sort of internally. Mm. But um, 
you know, there's a lot of that. Like, I don't get me wrong. I love CIA, my career at CIA and NSA, which was very different. You know, I wouldn't trade it for the world. But, you know, if you keep your eyes open, you, you kind of learn things. And so I had some experiences that maybe drove that home a little bit more. Like I said, um, you know, I uh, uh, when 9-11 happened, I ended up stepping out of intelligence for a couple of years, which happens a lot. They take people mm. who were sort of experts in their field and succumb them into policy positions for periods of time. So I, I was at State Department and then I was at the Oper Office of the Secretary of Defense during the Bush years, right, with Cheney mm. and Rumsfeld. And you mm. saw a lot of this, like where they were deliberately you know, harassing the intelligence community because it was not supporting uh, mm. the policy decisions that they wanted to go forward with. And, you know, you just really, uh, you know, as an idealist, and a lot of people in the intelligence business are idealists, right? Mm -hmm. We're taught that you're supposed to be neutral, you're just presenting, you're not prescriptive, you're presenting information for, you know, the administration to use, that's their purview. But then when you see them deliberately and, you know, what the Bush administration mm. just looks like child's play in comparison to what we were <laughs> oh <my God>. recently. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, my God. Um, anyway, it just kind of opens your eyes. So I did see a lot of a lot of stuff that that was extremely discouraging and, and made me think. And um, those were the kinds of things that I wanted to bring forward in a spy novel. Yeah. And then on top of that, though, writing that kind of book, which then just really went against what was what's more popular like i said the sort of military special operations mm -hmm. the jason bourne kind of stuff um and being a woman and not mm. having a, a male protagonist it's really been a hard row for for red widow to hoe I have to say. <laughs> well i'm glad it exists because uh you know after i read it i i'm not a fan of spy thrillers kind of because i'm i'm not really into the you know shooty shooty you know this guy's superhuman kind of approach to to spy thrillers um but i thought red widow was just a i thought it was a master class in like <laughs> how to craft a really brilliant book with something to say you know um thank you I think so that's, much that's what elevated it, it it was so hard to write it was super hard to write partly because and we can talk about the craft part of it if any of your mm -hmm. listeners are interested in writing thrillers and i don't think i'm the person to teach you that's the case. but um you know, it has two points of view. And when the second point of view character comes in, there's a big revelation, like everything, it changes the entire mm -hmm. playing field, right? Mm -hmm. So conventionally, you want that to come in as late as possible in a book. But I, I that character, Teresa, who is the Red Widow, mm -hmm. who has this incredible secret, mm -hmm. that voice was so dynamic, mm -hmm. uh, so much more dynamic than Lindsay's, that I wanted it to come in earlier. And yeah. so I it was a it took like a year to reconcile this because my agent who is um a, a huge student of spy novels mm. really fought for having it later but the whole book just wasn't working when it came in later mm -hmm. so the trouble is once it moved in you know every thread that goes through that book has like a million little components <laughs> that would have to be changed it was i describe it as like the world's worst jenga puzzle like <laughs> i change this one thing and then i'd have to go through and figure out all the little pieces that were tied to it and change them all and then the next piece and the next piece it, it, the reworking was incredible i did i use um spreadsheets to track plot well, yeah. <laughs> plot points uh -huh. and stuff and i just had to keep rewriting those so many times i was ready to kill myself it was so flipping hard 
<laughs> well, it, I, I mean, it pays off. It really, really does. Well, that's so interesting too, because I mean, like when you when you make that huge change and you bring that that dynamic voice in a lot sooner, then I feel like you could also create more conflict, right? So that's probably a lot of what you were adjusting. Right. I mean, it's funny, and we're going through this now with the TV show too, because you know somebody weighs in. I want it to look more X, or I want it to look mm-hmm. more Y, and then it ends up having like all these uh, implications mm-hmm. for the story and the subplots and all that kind of stuff too. Um, so uh, yeah, did you know? And, and this gets back to publishing as opposed to craft. Mm-hmm. You write the best book you can, but then if you move into the publishing side of thing, you know, your agent's going to have thoughts about how the book might need to change. And then your editor will have thoughts about how the book might need to change. And so you're constantly changing. Oh my God, TV is so much more. <laughs> I am not sure how anything ever gets made in television. And, and I have asked the people who actually know television who are involved in mm-hmm. this. And they're like, yeah, we don't know either. Cause it's like, yeah. <laughs> everybody wants to change it at every step of the way. Yeah. I think Dan- Daniel Krauss uh, talks about it a lot on Twitter. He's he's very angry with Hollywood for the way that they you know <laughs> kind of treat stories. So yeah, I'm trying not to get to that place, <laughs> but but it is mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. Yeah. So when when you go to write a story, I mean, we've we've talked a little bit about kind of these human themes that really stand out. You know, whether it be something like. Um, you know, the fear of bad leadership in, in the hunger or, you know, something like this human weight of espionage or, or human ambition in Red Widow. You know, when you when you develop those themes, do you go into a story kind of like, I know what I want t- this story to do? Or do you have to kind of develop some of that theme as you explore through a draft? So I love this question. I'm going to go back to, again, 20 years ago, what I was taught in the master's program, which was right. There's four elements. Maybe this was just one (laughs) professor's idea, right? There's four elements to any work, um, character, plot, voice, and theme. And, you know, then there's a question of, you know, well, what goes, what's, what should be weighted the heaviest, blah, blah, blah. And they always said, well, a story needs to have a theme, but you can't go into a story, you know, thinking theme, 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 and beating your Mm. reader over the head with theme and all that. It's better if you don't think of a theme and then it just comes up through your subconscious and comes into the story. Mm. And and I think that's true because nobody likes to be lectured to, especially in a story or a book. But unfortunately, I've gotten gotten into this place, and I kind of think it's it's because of, you know, my experience on the intelligence side of thing, where, you know, like I said, I was a national intelligence officer at forty. By the time I was fifty, mm. you know, I was a leading analyst in my field, and you know, it just makes you like this lecturing fool. And so <laughs> I do, I think, tend to be a little you know, lectury, little bossy in my stories. And especially with these historical horror novels, because mm. the first one I wrote, The Hunger, I didn't go into it like that. It was just, mm. let's look at the story of these people. And when I really learned about what happened all along the trail, you know, it was horrifying. And I oh, yeah. saw that, mm. you know, you could almost say these people were cursed. So that's where the story came from. But at the end, your publicist, the first question they all ask you is, you know, anybody asks you is why now? Why should we care about what happened, you know, to the Donner Party today? Mm. And so when I looked at that, uh, what in, what were the things that drove the Donner Party, made the Donner Party even happen back in the 18th? 
40s or yeah that's what happened mm-hmm. um you know which was about the time of manifest destiny and the whole westward migration so then i realized wow there were these things that were driving the country then and they're still driving us now mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. i've kind of looked to learn to look at that to the point now where i like the fervor the book that's coming out mm-hmm. in april is about the japanese internment right. but unapologetically it's about what's happening in america today Mm -hmm. racism against asian americans Mm -hmm. i'm asian american you know this is my community Mm -hmm. and that what happened in the 1940s which was unforgivable and criminal by american law um is still happening today Mm. right and you just so i i've become a little bit more upfront about the theme but Mm. for most writers i would say don't write that way because um it's it's gonna make your stories worse (laughs) (laughs) well i found too it it not only makes the story worse but it also lends itself to writer's block because if you're always Mm -hmm. trying to think about theme and think about how can I force the theme in here then you're stumbling and you're like well I don't know how to proceed with the story Mm -hmm. and Uh, you know that's that's kind of so I try to try to avoid I'm like you I try to avoid theme if anything theme is like a a major idea it's like a broad thing and then I let my characters kind of describe or as they're they're developed kind of talk about what you know, kind of how the theme is shaped as the narrative goes on. Mm. So I think you're absolutely right. It should come up almost like a shadow at the yeah. end of the story when you realize that this is really what we've been talking about all along. Yeah. But that's really hard to do. And if you're like me, the more you do it, the worse you get. The secret <laughs> project I'm working on now is another World War II story. Mm. And it has to do with Nazis. And it's really hard not to get heavy handed when you start talking about <laughs> Nazis. <laughs> so it kind of leaning on that, that, question of timeliness you know um do you feel like that's a really important part of kind of your creative process do you feel like that gives you like a sense of exigency when you're writing um you know you you find these historical parallels and then try to develop a, a story that that kind of allegorizes that for you you know i but it's, you shouldn't do it <laughs> um, <laughs> So what happened, for instance, with this project that I'm working on now, I had to start thinking about what would the next historical horror novel be. Mm. Um, you know, as soon as you turn one in, you don't have a contract. And so you're starting <laughs> to think about what should the next book be? And, you know, and your publisher's asking. You kind of got overwhelmed but, with that on Twitter with the the responses, didn't you? Oh, my God. People love the molasses flood so much. <laughs> but you guys know. <laughs> I did too. I, I kind to, of I presented a couple of options too. So. <laughs> yeah, but and so it's always interesting to sort of get a sense of where people's heads are at. But then there's the the added layers of you know what are the demands of inherent in something that makes it a good story and yeah. all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So so we'll just we'll just you know bookmark that. But um, <laughs> then there's also well this is part of it you know you can come up with a great idea but your publisher may not want to publish it because they're looking at what sales trends are and like right now for historicals they're still looking at like anything before the 20th century is just not selling well Mm. and so you know it's got to be world war ii or whatever Mm. which makes it even harder to to (laughs) think of a story so when i started researching world war ii and i started seeing you know, I look for uh, things that we're still seeing today. 
And so like one of the things that was fascinating is how much the Nazis really believed in magical thinking and that it really drove a lot of their policies, which is bananas, right? And you'd think, oh, those silly people from the 1930s, 40s, and, and 50s, um, you know, how could they be so stupid if if you didn't know what happened just a few years ago? Right. What's happening today, right, with the My Pillow guy and shit like that? How does a modern society function when 38% of the population mm-hmm. believes in fairy, you know, that fairy tales are real, basically. Yeah. And so, you know, that's, I, I can't leave that alone. So I've got to <laughs> write a story about that. Yeah. Which is all I can say about it right now. <laughs> all right, yeah, yeah. So that, that, I wanted that to be my, my transition, by the way. We were talking about the espionage and I wanted to be like, you know, speaking of horror, let's look at what's happened recently and what you're writing. So. <laughs> yeah. So with regards to your historical fiction and your your historical horror, right, um, you've talked a little bit in the past about how kind of constricted you felt um, about trying to represent, you know, fictional stories about real people, you know, people who really lived and how this changes for the fervor. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about that? (laughs) Sure. Um, Because... And, and don't get me wrong, I don't think there's any right kind of reader, right? Mm-hmm. You read what you want to read, and that's wonderful. Just read for Pete's sakes, right? <laughs> so I'm, I'm not telling anybody that how they think about a book or how a book should be is wrong. But when you go out and you meet people, you hear the whole gamut, right? <laughs> so there's a there's a fair number of people who think historical fiction should not have any fantasy element in it whatsoever, right? It should, there mm. shouldn't be alternative fiction. There shouldn't be, you know, horror-based fiction, which I write. There shouldn't be a fantasy element or something like that. And that's fine. But so don't read a book that advertises it, <laughs> you know, or don't be disappointed if that's what you get. I mean, read it because you might actually like it and it might mm. tell you something that you hadn't thought about. But um, so you get that and then you feel bad, you know, that you disappointed these people. Um, basically, I came to see that maybe writing real people in actual historical events, you know, could be kind of disrespectful. As much as I may be upfront about the fact that this is not meant to be an accurate representation of a historical mm-hmm. event as it occurred, that it's supposed to be a what if or whatever. So I've kind of gotten away from like in the hunger, almost everybody was a real person who existed in right. history. A couple of them for various reasons, because what the character had to do was so different from what they actually did in real life that I changed the character, but a character was based on a real person. Mm-hmm. And then in the deep, which is um, sort of a Mm reimagining of the sinking of the Titanic and its sister ship, the Britannic, which also sank. Wonderful coincidence. Yeah. (laughs) Um, There were more more of the main characters were fictional. But now in the fervor, almost all the characters are fictional. There's just Mm -hmm. a couple that that were real people. And it was because the coincidence that happened in their lives was so amazing that I couldn't like not use them. <laughs> but I'm I'm sure I'm going to get some people come out ready. Somebody's come out and like that was disrespectful what you did to R.T. Mitchell. I'm really sorry, you know. But but I'm upfront about it and and whatever. The other thing that was really interesting about the fervor was this was the first time I got to write a character. One of the main characters mm. is my ethnicity is is mm. Asian, and oh, I'd wow. never done that before and it was amazing how freeing 
that was. Mm. Um, partly because, you know, the whole thing about the internment. Now, my family was not interned. My mother was in Japan at the time. Mm-hmm. But my husband, who was also Japanese-American, his whole family was interned. So for decades, you know, I heard their stories. We talked to other people whose families had been through it. We watched documentaries. So we were very, I was very well aware of the complex uh, circumstances behind the internment. It wasn't just for the little snapshot that you get in history class. Oh, it was because of Pearl Harbor and people were afraid the Japanese, you know, the Japanese community was full of spies. Well, that wasn't the case. (laughs) And the Japanese Americans who went to camp were incredibly patriotic. Um, and, and there were a lot of economic reasons behind that, as well as decades of his of, of hatred against Chinese mm-hmm. and Japanese, particularly on the West Coast, that enabled all that to happen. And I completely lost my train of thought. There was something else <laughs> I was going to say about this whole thing. Oh, so I was pretty mad on their behalf for mm-hmm. decades. And um, so writing that character was my opportunity to let that anger out. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of bashing people over the head in that book. And one of my editors came back to me and said, do you really think that character would bash all those white people over the head? And I said, yes, yes, I absolutely do. And I just regret that I didn't bash more of them. So there you go. <laughs> I, know, um, I know George Takai has been pretty vocal on social media about the Japanese internment. And I think he and his family spent time in, in an internment camp, which yes, leads me kind of to that next idea of, of research and interviews and stuff. So how did you prepare for the fervor to, to kind of get into that mindset? You know, the crazy thing is, is I didn't have to prepare too much because <laughs> I knew it so well. Right, um, right. One one lucky thing I lucked into was one of my neighbors where I had been living before we moved recently. Her family had been interned at Minidoka in Idaho, which was mm. going to be the location for the camp. That was the camp I chose to represent in the fervor. Mm-hmm. And they had saved all of the documents from the camp, like all the little oh, mimeoed wow. camp newsletters and hand-drawn maps and all this stuff. And she lent me this whole treasure trove of stuff that I could oh, use. Wow. And uh, that was an incredible gift. And I didn't want to give it back to her, but I did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but because uh, it was irreplaceable, you know, I wasn't going to find this in any museum or anything mm. like that. So that was incredibly helpful. But yeah, this was one of those cases. And it was interesting. So one of the things I'll talk about um which I don't talk about too often because it just gets very confusing for people is the historical horror novels. I actually write with partners. Hmm. Okay. Um, It's Glasstown entertainment, which is run by these two women who are both best-selling authors, but, and they were, they were um, editors at at, um, Penguin, I think. And they left and became writers, but they also wanted to start their own business. So it's kind of like a book packaging company. Mm -hmm. They come up with ideas and they sell the books. But the big thing with them is they sell a lot of film rights. Mm -hmm. A high percentage of their books get picked up for film or TV. And so the, the deal I have with them is I'm not a writer for hire. We are partners on the books that we work on. Mm -hmm. So we do the plotting and then I write the story and then we try to sell it. But we frequently fight (laughs) about the books and what should be in them. And, you know, and it's a compromise. They give into some of the stuff I want to do when I give into some of the stuff they want to do. And this one was definitely more a labor of love for me because I felt like there are just certain things that could not be represented in the book. And it was eye opening to me how little a lot of people, you know, how little they know about what happened and what the life was, what life was like. Mm. 
you know, the Japanese Americans were Americans. Yeah. They weren't Japanese. They didn't walk around in kimonos. They didn't practice Japanese religion. Their name was Susie, <laughs> not, you know, <laughs> that's just how it was. They were just taking Americans whose faces looked a little different and putting them in prisons for yeah. no damn reason, confiscating their property. They lost a lot of money. My husband's whole family lived in Berkeley. Imagine what that real estate would be worth oh today. Gosh. Oh, wow. Right? Yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was just a very bad thing that America mm, did yeah. and realized it and, you know, issued an apology and made incredibly insufficient reparations. But, hey, it is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> there definitely hasn't been enough discussion on it. Enough, no, I, enough, uh, it hasn't been brought to light enough. No, I, I was just going to say, you know, my my wife uh, I, I brought it up to her. We, we were talking about, you know, just some of the 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 dark shady shit that the American government has done to its own people, you know, and, and to other people. And, um, you know, I brought up these, these internment camps and, and she, she didn't believe me. She, she was like, oh, you're that did, no, <laughs> no, for real. And now keep in mind, my, my wife has a, a high school education from Arkansas, you know, from, from the South. And, uh, and she had no clue that any of this stuff had happened before because it's, it's not talked about it, especially in white America in, in, you know, in the white South, um, which I think is, is, uh, mortifying, right? I mean, yeah. it, it's really quite scary. Well, it's interesting to hear you saying that. And it's another reason why books like this have to be written because first yeah. of all, one of the relocation centers was in Arkansas. The easternmost relocation center was in Arkansas. So, um, and a friend of mine actually did a big museum, a big exhibit on it uh, for one of the museums down there. So it's mm. kind of sad that it doesn't get talked about more because it was a part of Arkansas life. Yeah. Um, but yeah, now I know a lot of Asian Americans, Japanese Americans, including myself, were very happy after 9-11 to see, I mean, I don't know if you remember, but there was a lot of talk mm. about should we be interning, you know, Arab Americans, mm -hmm. Arabs in America, and to see that discussion go the way of no, it's wrong, mm -hmm. we can't do that, these people yeah. have not, you know, it, that's probably the greatest thing that came out of the Japanese internment, that more Americans realize this is not what this country does. This is not what we stand for. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's really rough. So, uh, you know, with regards to, to fiction, I know we're, we're kind of in this strange moment of discourse uh, in the social media world, you know, where, where people are kind of talking about the utility of fiction um, in, you know, difficult times or in, in times where you feel like it's really dark and uh, why are we not all just, you know, kind of reading nonfiction? Do you feel like the fervor has something of an answer to that question? I do. And, and I do think that there's a role for fiction. I, I jumped in and tweeted a little bit about it. Not that anybody cares what I think, but, um, <laughs> you know, that's the whole argument for art, right? Art is the mirror that you hold up to life that helps you understand it better. And, you know, I have a very simplistic way of explaining this to people. It's like when I grew up, right? There used to be commercials on TV. Don't smoke, wear your seatbelt, right? But that didn't impress people. But if somebody told you, wow, you know, my brother was just killed in a car accident and he didn't have a seatbelt on or, you know, that sort of thing. If somebody tells you a story about it, it's 
it registers more with you. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that because people, again, don't want to be lectured to. They don't, you know, facts just bounce off them like marshmallows off a water buffalo. So, <laughs> but a story, you know, it, it hits somewhere we're kind of conditioned to learn things. We learn things through stories. So I do think there's utility. And, you know, some of my friends, some, some books that have been very popular recently are great examples of this. Like Sean Cosby, S.A. Cosby, mm-hmm. you know, his books... Um, uh, blacktop wasteland and razor blade uh, tears yeah you know they really show you the effect of racism against african americans mm. without you know being lecturing and stephen graham jones who often he's native american and he mm-hmm. often writes uh, with native american characters and they too are just so like the only good indians i think everybody oh should, yes. in america should read, read that freaking book yeah right? i agree i agree no, no doubt that, that book is like, incredible that was one of our early yes, episodes I mean. actually was, was oh, that. Awesome. <laughs> yeah just amazing and i look at guys like that and how they do it and they're role models for how we need to be writing and talking about race in this country yeah. and i'd love to see the fervor contribute to that conversation but it is amazing like how invisible the asian issue is mm. in uh, in america i just did an event in charlottesville virginia and i was very you know, grateful to be on it. But as I'm starting to talk about the fact that, you know, um, hate crimes against Asians has gone mm. up over 300% since a former president of ours, you know, blamed China for, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. releasing coronavirus as a weaponized disease or something. And the looks, it was 100% white audience, I think. And the looks on their face was like, news to me, you know? Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, it's just, um, yeah. How to have this conversation, yeah. Well, we only have a couple of minutes left. Um, So I I guess the final couple of questions are how could people find you on online, on social media, and what projects do you – we've been talking about the fervor and a couple other things, but what projects do you specifically want to plug for the the listeners? Okay. So probably the best place to find me is my website, which is almakatsubooks.com. And I would love it if – um, people would sign up for my newsletter while they're there because mm-hmm. you know social media is such a hard thing uh, you know the algorithms change and it becomes harder and harder for people to discover you or mm. even see anything you post so that's the most foolproof way of knowing like when a book's coming out or if something's on sale so I, I'd really appreciate if they do that uh, what's next is um, well Red Widow just came out in paperback mm-hmm. It was nominated for Thriller of the Year. Awesome. Yeah. Congratulations. Such, such Which, an achievement, honestly. It's so great. Uh, it's <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> I know I'm not going to win because I'm up against some incredible books, but even that was just like such a freaking shock. That is still in development with Fox for a TV show. Wow. We're waiting right now. We're hoping early next week we'll hear whether or not we're going to get to film the pilot. Oh, and uh, yeah, I know every it's like this every step. Is, <laughs> <laughs> so that's that. The Hunger. We're pitching it right now for a TV series. So oh, wow. I'll let you know if if we are able to sell that anywhere. We got a great team behind it. A former um, showrunner of The Walking Dead is involved in it. So yeah, fingers crossed on that. Uh, The Fervor comes out April 26th. And then after that, I am- Same here. (laughs) (laughs) And as it stands right now, the next Red Widow novel should be coming out in 2023. 
Wow. And that's as far as I can see in the future. <laughs> All right. That one's called uh, Red London. Is that right? Red London. Yeah. And it's awesome. it's so timely. I did ask the publisher to think about moving it up because it's about the oligarchs in Russia oh, yeah. and the oh, role wow. they play in things. Yeah. yeah. I'm really excited about that one. Red Widow was one of my favorite reads of the last couple of years. It was great. And, and so definitely, much. as you come across this information, as you want to share news, um, drop us a line. We'll be happy to plug you. I mean, we don't we we have a growing audience. It's it's not Thank huge, you. but it's getting bigger, and we'd be happy to plug you anytime you have new information you want us to share. That's so kind of you. Hey, don't forget to send me those notes though, because you have to yes. help me be a better instructor. At <laughs> I will definitely do that. You will you will get them from me within about probably uh, tomorrow, maybe by tomorrow. Awesome. Thank awesome. you. Yeah, because I don't do this until the summer, but right. I got to start uh, yeah, working on my brain. Your head around it. Yes, I will All definitely, right. definitely send those to you. Thank you so much for joining us today. We've really, really appreciated it. This has been wonderful. All right. I think that's a wrap for the episode. It's a wrap for the episode. Yes. Thank you yeah. so much, gentlemen. Thank, and, thank and you. I'm looking forward to it coming out. And we'll keep this going. Yeah, definitely. Thank you very much. All right. Okay. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.